With funding from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, New Unity has transformed its Newington Green Meeting House into a fully accessible, free heritage space, sharing its radical history and encouraging visitors to think differently. The building, which was a hotbed of revolutionary thinking in the 18th century, holds stories of Richard Price, Anna Letitia Barbold, Andrew Pritchard, and most notably Mary Wollstonecraft, leading to it being described as the birthplace of British feminism. The Meeting House hosts a regular programme of events and exhibitions, celebrating this history and serving its local community. Find out more online. Women's work, women's paid work after marriage was certainly not new in the 1870s and there's a long history of course of particularly working class um, wives undertaking this. But in the 1870s in Britain we have the expansion of white collar work for middle class women um, for a whole variety of reasons that I can elaborate, elaborate on later if people would like me to. So from the 1870s you have all of these new opportunities in kind of white collar administrative clerical kind of roles for uh, middle-class women and um, it's often sort of it was often assumed by those offering the opportunities that women would work only until they got married and then they'd get married and literally go and live happily ever after with um, husbands and children um, but of course um, that's not necessarily the case and one of the interesting things that starts happening um, in the 1870s and onwards is you start having discussions about whether married women can actually work and should actually work and what their responsibility should be and of course this is quite interesting because working class married women are already working um, outside the home after marriage um, but the question really comes up when it starts affecting middle class women this is so true for so many questions in women's history once it starts affecting middle class women you get a lot of discussion um, about it um, and what I want to use as an example here is um, uh, some kind of uh, quotations and examples from, from a report uh, put together by the post office in the early 1890s. Now, the post office is quite interesting because it was one of the early kind of employers of women, even actually before the 1870s, but particularly after the 1870s, took on a significant number of women in, in sort of clerical, um, clerical roles. And um, they very quickly put in a marriage bar, or what was known as a marriage bar, and that is essentially a bar um, on married women working so if you if you were um, about to be married you had to resign your job and if you were married you couldn't be hired to a permanent position you could be hired to a temporary one which is interesting as well because if the um, labor market kind of needs married women it's not shy about actually hiring them temporarily um, so the post office had set up the marriage bar in the 1870s and but by the 1890s it actually had a bit of a rethink or it looked like it might have a rethink and in the end in 1892 it publishes this report um, which is sort of extended to several pages and um, you can see I think from the examples that I've, I've given on the slide that a lot of these reasons about why married women shouldn't work were kind of social reasons what we might call kind of social reasons so there's an assumption for example that um, a wife and mother is naturally going to be responsible for the child's care there's an assumption that indeed they would have children after marrying and that there's a real kind of collapsing of the roles of wife and mother here it's assumed that once you're a wife you're automatically going to be a mother there's kind of things about um women's conventional 
um, roles. And there's also a curious um, bit at the bottom where they, where it's sort of argued that um, the women who work in the civil service and work for the post office in particular um, appear to regard marriage as a promotion. I should point out that no women were actually spoken to directly in the putting together of this report. It was kind of based on lots of men sitting around a table and sharing their impressions. Um, not the first and probably not the last time that will happen. Um, but what's really interesting here, of course, is that these social reasons um, that, are, that are offered are the ones that make it easier to justify. It's easy or easier to persuade society at large that um, you have to ban married women from working if um, largely the reasons you give are the ones about women's expected roles, about sort of conventional gender roles um, and stereotypes um, in society. It's much easier to convince people of your argument. There was another argument that employers used, particularly amongst themselves, that was about um, turnover and saving money. So essentially, if you forced a significant, a, you know, a proportion of your employees to quit at any one moment, then you hired their replacements, you would hire the replacements at the um, bottom of the salary scale, you'd save some money. I'm not actually convinced that ever worked, because I think with the amount of training that you would have to give the replacements, any, any money that you saved in terms of the salary, the lower salaries you were paying actually effectively got wasted on training opportunities. Um, so I'm never actually convinced about this economic argument that businesses tried to convince themselves of. So anyway, what you really have by the 1890s um, really quite firmly in place is the marriage bar. And it is particularly solidified after the First World War. Um, and it's the interwar years in particular that um, we really see the kind of entrenchment of the marriage bar. And in effect, because the civil service makes a very strong point of having a marriage bar in 1919 onwards, it had had one before, obviously, with the post office and some other departments, but it really entrenches the marriage bar in 1919. Um, this also um, spreads to teaching and, in fact, already had spread to teaching um, previously and then you get other employers sort of private employers but big organizations so the chocolate factories um, chemical um, industries railway companies a, a lot of kind of large institutions instigated marriage bars um, and what effect effectively they do is write something in the contract that says married women um, you know or, or once a woman marries she has to resign and so it's, it's not actually a piece of legislation in terms of a law but it's the piece of it's a clause that goes in to many many employment contracts um, what we have at the same time, of course, is working class women continuing to work after marriage in all kinds of low paid and low skilled roles, often roles that um, middle class women and indeed middle class and working class men don't want to do. And so there's kind of less discussion of these roles, um, which is you know quite telling in its own way, I think. And there's an inter interesting questions as well around um, married women who are professionals. Um, and here I'm thinking particularly about um, doctors and other sort of um, um, careers that you need a high level of training for. Not that you don't need a high level of training for teaching, because of course you do, but teaching was always dealt with slightly separately. Um, so 
it was somewhat easier for women in the professions. So doctors, lawyers, vets, for example, to kind of make their case that um, they should be allowed to continue work after marriage. And of course, a number of them are kind of employed on a freelance or kind of self-employed basis. So it's much easier if you're your own employer to continue working after marriage um, if you want to. Um, in the context of the interwar years, of course, we have at certain points, not at all points, but at certain points, we have rising unemployment. And so there are kind of significant and quite emotional discussions sometimes around whether you should allow married women to work if you have um, other families in the community that are struggling and the kind of debates around that. And what you also see in a number of communities is married women able to get work when their husbands can't. So there's an interesting kind of interesting discussion debates here about the breadwinner and actually does the breadwinner always have to be a man we often talk about the male breadwinner model but we see that collapsing because of um, the the types of industries in particular where there was unemployment in this period what you also have as the marriage bar gets stronger in the interwar years and more and more um, occupations institute a marriage bar is um, resistance to it um, and this comes from a number of quarters, quite particularly from a number of feminist organisations. And so the image on the slide here is from um, paperwork relating to the mass meeting of the right of married women to earn in 1933. And um, I found this in the archives and actually the paper is torn off halfway down. But even with the alphabetical list that you can see sort of down the screen here, you can see a huge range of women's organisations and actually just not not entirely always women's organisations, but significant number of organizations who are contributing to the mass meeting for um, married women's right to earn. Um, there were some trade unions who also supported the campaign for married women's right to earn, um, but not, um, not very many of them. A number of tr trade unions were ambivalent at best about married women's right to work, and a number of them actually didn't support it and were arguing that um, men should have priority um, for jobs. There's an interesting sort of dimension to that argument in the sense that the labour market at this point is very gender segregated, so actually men and women quite often aren't doing the same work. They are in some professions, but in many other professions, they're not. So the argument about kind of protecting men's jobs doesn't actually necessarily work in, um, in a number of cases. Um, there's also increasing discussion in the mainstream press throughout the 1930s. It really kind of gathers pace. The marriage bar becomes an issue that is sort of one that women's organizations are talking about in the 1920s to one that's talked about very widely in the mainstream press um, in uh, the 1930s and also on things like uh, radio programs um, as well. Excuse me a second. Okay, <laughs> well what we have by the end of the interwar years is some really quite interesting kind of polling data on this. And obviously, um, I mean, it feels interesting saying this on a day when we're still watching the American election results, opinion polls and polls aren't always accurate. I don't always tell us everything. There are sort of methodological considerations to using these, but we can see something quite interesting here with some of this data, I think. So in 1938, there's a question, do you think a woman should be barred from any form of employment simply because she's married? And the resounding answer there is no. And then the one in 1939 is um, titled Working Married Women. The 38 one had been um, titled Equality for Women. In 1939, we have um, questions about um, whether trained women such as teachers and doctors should give up their jobs 
jobs and a question about um, women not holding skilled posts. So there's an interesting division of opinion there, or at least ambivalence about whether trained women should be made to give up their jobs. Much more of a resounding yes for women doing so-called non-skilled um, work, uh, giving, up, uh, giving up their jobs. And of course, later in 1939, Britain um, enters the Second World War, and there are some really interesting kind of um, debates and issues that, ar that arise here. Of course, the country needs women's labour, it needs married women's labour to help with the war effort in all kinds of ways. So married women are strongly encouraged to undertake um, war work. Um, but what is interesting to me as a historian of kind of thinking about of thinking about ideas of women's roles in society and um, thinking about how things like marriage and work are conceptualized. What's interesting to me is that um, when it came to conscripting women, so women are conscripted in the, in the Second World War for the first time, um, single women are conscripted, but the decision is taken not to conscript married women who don't have children. Obviously, there's a good argument for not conscripting married women who are also mothers because they someone has to do the childcare, but um, married women who aren't who don't have children are not conscripted. Um, and one of the arguments used for not conscripting them um, that really kind of wins the day in the end is that if they have husbands who are serving abroad or who are, or who are, are elsewhere for war work, those husbands won't like the idea of sort of thinking of their wife out at work and not waiting for them keeping house at home. And it's fascinating to me that in the middle of a war, when there was this kind of this demand for labour, um, there wasn't conscription of married women. And that was the reason why it was about men's ideas of what their wives would be doing and wanting to keep up male morale. Now, of course, many married women did, in, 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 and also married women with children did volunteer um, or were persuaded by propaganda to volunteer for work in the Second World War. So we do have significant numbers of married women working in the Second World War and indeed women who marry during the war and continue working as well. And um, all organisations that had marriage bar clauses in their contracts um, actually drop those um, for the war. And so I just want to wrap up briefly by talking about kind of what happens after the Second World War. Um, and during the war, um, these are these are posters that sort of are released towards the end of the war, you have women um, being kind of surrounded by images like this. So this is, these are adverts for buying war bonds and contributing to the kind of government war savings schemes. And you have a very clear picture of what women are meant to be doing after the war. It's husband, children, um, taking your dog and a boat and a bucket and spade and whatever to the beach. And it's beautifully sunny, of course, after the war as well. Um, so you have these kinds of messages being sent um, to women during um, the war. Um, there are some interesting debates um, in from about 1944 onwards about um, whether the marriage bar should actually be re-established. And I don't have time to talk about the ins and outs of them now, um, but essentially the Second World War did kind of make organisations think again a little bit about should we be imposing a marriage bar and... Um, could we not sort of be a bit more flexible? There had in practice been some flexibility previously if a particularly talented or experienced woman would be subject to a marriage bar, there was flexibility for her to stay if she wanted. Um, and so there's kind of lots of discussion around actually is a marriage bar really the best thing to have? 
In the end, the marriage bar was abolished in teaching and it was also abolished in the civil service. Um, and the civil service case is interesting because even though they have these debates about, oh, maybe, maybe it's not the best idea, maybe we should be um, leaving it to women a bit more to make their own decisions, um, in the end it is decided that they want to put the marriage bar back. And in the end, they do not put the marriage bar back. But the only reason they do this, um, or, the, or the only reason they don't put the marriage bar back, is because at the same time, there are government campaigns like this one and like this one that essentially um, were asking for um, women to go back to work. And given that single women are already working, these are very clearly um, targeted at married women. And so they're essentially saying, we need you to rejoin the workforce um, and to, to do quite particular roles, but we need you in the workforce. So the civil service felt that it couldn't be telling its own women, uh, its own women workers to leave just because they were married when other armed of the government were saying we absolutely need you right here right now to help the economy get back on its feet and to work in factories and to work in sort of other contexts. Um, so what you have then by kind of the late 1940s is the kind of, and I would argue that this start, this process starts earlier than um, the Second World War, but you have a kind of growing acceptance and sort of acceptance of the reality of married women's work. Um, it's still seen as a debate that's very much about um, the middle classes, um, the sort of the continued sort of pushing aside of the issues that working class women face and also the fact that working class wives are, have very often worked outside the home for, um, for um, a considerable period. You also have the assumption that marriage is automatically going to lead to motherhood, which, which is, is really fascinating, the kind of way in which that so many of the debates about the marriage bar are actually about childcare and about maternity leave and, and sort of lots of, um, lots of um, issues like that. Um, so what you also have um, is even though the formal marriage bars have kind of disappeared, once teaching and the civil service take their marriage bars away, many of the other organisations also do, but then you have the kind of hangover, if you like, of the marriage bar and the kind of informal pressures for married women to leave, to leave the workplace, the kind of informal expectations as well. And of course you have, you've had whole generations now of women who grow up thinking that when they get married, they will be leaving work and that's that. So there's all these kinds of emotional and sort of um, social pressures and kind of all the kind of internal and informal ways of thinking about women's work that are still very much there, even though the formal marriage bar has gone. Okay, I will leave that there, but thank you very much. I look forward to your questions as well. Thanks. Thank you so much, Helen. That was absolutely fascinating. And to, to give us all of that information in such a, such a short space of time as well. Thank you so much. Um, it was absolutely fascinating learning about the conscription thing that you were talking about. I, I had no idea uh, about that and how moralistic it is when it comes to women working. You know, this is a real like moral issue for society, you know, uh, kind of how... Uh, you know, how civilised a country we are almost, you know, it's fascinating. Thank you. Um, I'm going to pass now over to Emma, who just asked me to introduce herself as Emma. So, Emma. I did notice that. Oh, here we go. Great. I am back on. <laughs> I get cut off, but yeah. OK, so my name's Emma Cunningham. 
and I'm going to talk to you tonight about my version of uh, women and work past and present. So I'm going to start by saying I've been in teaching for 24 years, so this has been my job. But if I rewind just slightly, um, certainly this wasn't expected of me. So I was the first person in my family to go to university and my school reports uh, illustrate still that this was not expected of me by my teachers. So what happened then? So I was just an average, average underperforming kid, I would say. Um, went back to college after uh, underperforming the first time. Uh, so wasn't kind of a gifted or talented student, uh, but on third attempt, got my maths O-level. Yes. And uh, did an English A-level as well. So built up slowly and, and back now with two kids, did my degree, started a degree in English, which I switched to politics within weeks. Um, and these were definitely not things that were expected of me. Um, but I learned a lot, thrived in that sort of situation. And um, it was on this path that I met for the first time, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, and eventually, uh, wrote my PhD on Mary Wollstonecraft. So a radical uh, thinker and writer of the 18th century. Um, and her ideas have kind of inspired and continue to inspire me actually um, to the present time. Uh, so my suggestion is that the ideas of Wollstonecraft remain as resonant today as they were in her heyday of the 1790s um, and that I try to look at current issues for women in education and work um, using the ideas of Wollstonecraft. Uh, so this is my link to the title of the meeting tonight uh, and I can't wait for the unveiling of the statue next week, I have to say. So congratulations, Mary on the Green, B. Rolat, and um, the Wollstonecraft Society now. Um, so my talk tonight is going to be a little bit about me, my community, um, about the history that really sort of got me interested in the history of ideas, and which led to the idea of uh, what a woman is and what a woman, a woman can be and do. Uh, and this is one of the, the big questions about the nature of women. And it's one of the big ideas that Wollstonecraft takes on in her works. And she talks about the sameness of women to men. She talks about this equality and because in these terms, she's suggesting that women ought to have the same rights and... I think her connection's gone. She's not in the uh, Zoom call anymore, unfortunately. Ah, oh, okay. Well, thank you for that. That's helpful. Maybe when she comes back, we can um, ask her to, to do that. Um, Maybe in the meantime, we should go on to the next speaker and then hopefully when Emma comes back, she wasn't that far into it so she could start again. Um, I'll just wait one more minute to see if she comes back. But uh, I don't think she's in the uh, Zoom call at the moment.
No. Okay. Well, that's all right. Hopefully Emma comes back and then she can start again. But in the meantime, I was ashamed. I was really, that was really interesting. I was really getting into that. Um, I'm going to hand over to Annie then. And um, Annie, also known as the Fandango Kid, um, and Annie's going to be talking um, to us about um, her work and her experience um, as an artist and some of the things that uh, she works on. So Annie, I'll pass over to you. Hi everyone, um, I'm just going to share my screen actually because I thought it might be more useful to show some work as well in context. Okay, so I just wanted to just show you a couple of images because I think it might just help just to kind of introduce my work a little bit. Uh, sorry, I'm... <laughs> okay, um, yeah, so my name is Annie. Um, I um, do public installations around... Um, particularly around kind of smashing taboos around grief and mental health um, associated kind of trauma and mental health. I um, had experienced an enormous loss of family uh, when I was 27 and um, two of those people were really big matriarchs in my life, my mum and my sister um, at that time and I've kind of really been brought up by very kind of bold strong women and when that happened to me I remember thinking I've really lost my um, framework and I really um, you know wasn't able to uh, I, I just you know I really kind of lost my yeah lost everything that I kind of built in terms of you know my moral compass and you know how to navigate the world and um, I just remember sort of thinking, okay, I'm, I, if I survive this, then I really want to, you know, be able to kind of work with other young people, other young women, and kind of speak to them about, you know, work, you know, creatively to kind of navigate trauma and to kind of make mental health, um, you know, more of a more of a subject matter that was discussed and create a platform for dialogue around that. So I started to kind of. Um, to use my practice I just graduated at the time and I started to use my practice more and more in the public realm and I pretty much only do that now I don't ever kind of you know um, work within gallery spaces or anything it's all very much public public facing um, and the reason for that is that I really wanted to or still really do want to kind of I want people to access this work at their own speed. I want them to be able to return to it. I want to, I, I often or pretty much always run workshops and engagement work with communities before I install anything in, in, in this public space. And yeah, um, I guess, you know, for me, it's really important to, to kind of perpetuate this, this sort of very strong feminism that is that is within me in the way that I've been raised and you know I think having experienced so much trauma and so much grief it's it's been essential to me to kind of you know think of ways that I can use my practice to hopefully work with other young women you know make them sort of understand that some terrible some of the most terrible things can happen to you but actually you know you you can survive and it's it's a huge part of my practice to to do that um, so I just wanted to show you a couple of things. I just found, you know, a few slides of things. I do, you know, all kinds of public facing work, um, but these are just a few. This is in Elephant Castle. Um, and for me, this has been, this last one has been absolutely key. So, you know, my practice has absolutely saved my life. And when I started, um, when I did lose everybody initially in the first few years, I, I actually started teaching um, and it, 
honestly at that time for me it was a, a reason to get up in the morning um, and a reason to kind of keep going and but it what it became was you know something like a this incredible relationship with 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 other young people and this real life force that I discovered you know that was kind of you know all these incredible young people with incredible things to say and just sort of really needing to sort of channel their creative um their creativity and it that is now you know I don't really work so much in teaching anymore but that's really now become a large part of my practice in terms of engagement uh before I install something so yeah hopefully that's I'm just gonna it's just quite a short a short uh presentation but thank you for listening yeah are you are you finished Annie would you like to say anything else no I'm finished but okay I'm perfect that's fine if any and if anyone has any questions then they can ask um oh uh, Claire says can we see the last slide there Annie um that one yeah that'd be lovely and if anyone has any questions or want to know a bit more about Annie's work and practice and stuff then you can ask we will have some time for some questions at the end great and I can see already on the chat so Claire has some questions so we'll come back and do those questions at the end thank you so much Annie for sharing that and it's a very and what's lovely with this kind of panel and what we had last time and what we've got this time is not just professional stuff but also you know, like a very personal connection to the subject um and uh, it, it's the same for me and in a way in, in and in the way that it was for Emma too I think before she left and hopefully she'll be able to come back but uh you know I I feel very similarly to Emma in that I'm the first woman to be educated university educated in my family and that holds a lot of responsibility for me personally um when it comes to things things like women and work um well, I will move on now to Sam and um, one sec, oops, if you just give me one second. And um, this is Sam and Sam is the chair of the Board of Trustees for the Map Girls Memorial, um, which we're super excited to hear more about. So Sam, I'm gonna hand over to you. Um, thank, thank you for that, um, Amy. Um, so first of all, uh, hi, hi everyone and, and welcome to my kind of short contribution to this evening's working women past and present. I'm delighted to have been invited to speak to you all. Um, so really thank, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, so to start off, I'd just like to give you a brief introduction to who the Match Girls Memorial are. We're a charitable organisation established in March 2019 by me and my husband. Uh, the charity is dedicated to commemorating and memorialising the victorious Match Girls strike of 1888 and raising awareness through education and the arts of the amazingly brave and courageous story of hundreds of young women and girls that stood up and fought for their working rights. As you can see, we have an amazing team of people working with us to achieve these aims, and the pinnacle of which would be to get a statue to honour the match girls. Our patrons and ambassadors and trustees that you can see in this slide represent trade unions through to women's rights, to the arts and education, and we're very honoured to have them join us. So some of you I'm sure may know the story, but if I may, I'll just give you a whistle-stop stop tour um, of the events back in summer of 1888. It all started at this Bryant and May factory that you can see in the slide in Fairfield Road in Bow. Um, as an aside, this factory um, still stands, um, albeit now a gated community with 700 private residences. So back to the strike. 
working conditions at the factory were harsh, uh, with fines being commonplace for petty offences such as talking, having an untidy workbench, lateness, dropping matches. And some of the workers, including the home workers that made the matchboxes, even had to pay for the cost of their own materials. And then there was the dangerous white phosphorus used to make the matches that risked osteonecrosis or fuzzy jaw, which was like a cancer of the bone that would eat away at their jaws. So it, it wasn't all doom and gloom. So I'll give you a little bit of the lighter side of life. Um, they, they loved a night out and a chance to dress up and sing songs from the music halls. And to give you a flavor of how they enjoyed themselves, here are a few quotes from the, uh, the social commentators of the day. So Clara Collett in 1886 noted that they buy their clothes and feathers, especially the latter, by forming clubs, seven or eight of them will join together, paying a shilling each a week, drawing lots to decide who shall have the money each week. And Montague Williams commented on how the match girls come out very strong on a Saturday night, when any number of them may be found at the Paragon Music Hall in the Mile End Road, the Foresters Music Hall in Cambridge Road, and the Seabright at Hackney. They seem to know by heart the words of all the popular songs of the day and their homeward journey, though musical, is decidedly noisy. And the other thing, they knew how to sort out their differences. As recorded by George Duckworth in 1897, Bright and May have a rough set of girls. There are 2,000 of them when they're busy, rough and rowdy, but not bad morally. They fight with their fists to settle their differences. Not in the factory, for that's forbidden, but in the streets when they leave work in the evening. A ring is formed and they fight like men and they're not interfered with by the police. So anyway, back to the working day. So what caused the strike? There had been unrest before, but what was different in 1888? It seemed there was a potent mix of change in the air. The will and the grit of the workers to stand up for their rights, combined with the social reformers who were pushing to effect change. On the 15th of June, 1888, a fateful evening, the Fabian Society held a meeting. Clementina Black spoke up for the state of female labor and Henry Hyde Champion reported that Brian and May were taking over 20% dividends and yet paying their workers just starvation wages. He proposed a motion to boycott the purchase of Bryant and May matches, which was passed unanimously. The next day, Annie Besant and Herbert Burroughs went to see some workers outside the factory gates to get the true story of their working conditions. And sure enough, they readily reported dreadful tales of the conditions they had to work under, the long hours and the very long pay. A week later, Annie published an article in her weekly magazine, The Link, called The White Slavery in London. It laid bare the terrible truth of what the match factory workers had to endure day after day. The result was a threat of libel action by the factory directors who also demanded that their employees sign a document to say the link article was untrue. Well, they refused. There followed a few days of unrest that culminated in a dismissal that was enough to spark the flame into life. The Match Girls wrote this touching letter to Annie Bazant, which she didn't quite understand when she first received it. However, its meaning soon became clear as on the 5th of July, 1400 girls and women walked out on strike. The next day, some 200 workers marched from Mile End to Bouverie Street to speak to Annie and appeal for her help. A deputation of three were invited up to her office. Now, she wasn't a believer in strike action, much to 
popular belief in these days. Um, but instead, she actually favoured to change things via reform. But given the circumstances that they'd already walked out on strike, she agreed to help the match girls to fight their cause and plans were made to form a strike committee. So during the following days, the strikers held meetings, opened a strike register and started to rally wider support. The Pall Mall Gazette and the Star provided positive publicity, unlike the Times. Um, and also Charles Bradlaugh MP raised questions in the House of Commons. Less than a week after the strike started, Annie managed to take 56 girls and women to the House of Commons, where a deputation of 12 of them met with MPs Robert Cunningham Graham and Charles Coneybeer. Both the London Trades Council and Toynbee Hall got involved and public support was growing. Eventually, the London Trades Council secured a meeting with Brian and May and to discuss the strike demands. And it was agreed that a deputation of the strike committee could meet the directors to put their own case. Amazingly, on the 17th of July, just 12 days after they'd walked out on strike, the meeting took place and the directors agreed all terms in principle. The committee put the proposals to the rest of the girls and they enthusiastically approved with warm applause and wild cheering. The next day, it was in all the papers. It was a momentous victory for workers' rights and not least for women. One of the most important strikes ever was won in just short of a fortnight. Annie Besant's name has become synonymous with the 1888 strike, but it's right that we know the names of the courageous match girls too. We clearly cannot know all of them, but the name of the strike committee members should just as readily tip, trip off our tongues. They were Mary Knowles, Mary Cummings, Sarah Chapman, Alice Francis, Kate Sclater, Mary Driscoll, Jane Wakeling and Eliza Martin. Ten days later, after the inaugural meeting of the Union of Women Matchmakers took place in Stepney Meeting Hall, where 12 women were elected, including Sarah Chapman, who was actually my great grandmother. She's actually in the famous Union Committee photograph. She's second from the left at the back, standing next to Herbert Burroughs. I'm particularly proud of her involvement as she was the very first delegate to represent the new union at the International TUC later that year. In fact, it's the anniversary this week on Friday, the 6th of November. All of the union committee was shown here, shown here would have been prominent players in making the strike the success it was through their courage and determination. So please let's remember them. Eliza Martin, Louisa Beck, Julia Gambleton, Jane Wakeling, Jane Staines, Eliza Price, Mary Knowles, Kate Sclater, Ellen Johnson, Sarah Chapman, Mary Driscoll and Alice Francis. It's unbelievable, given the influence of this strike in subsequent years, that there is no public memorial to the Match Girls. Our charity is now determined to raise funds to permanently commemorate their brave actions. There's a woeful lack of, lack of statues to women in the UK, as can be seen by these alarming statistics from 2018. The situation has improved slightly since then, when Millicent Fawcett's statue was erected in Parliament Square. We've since seen Emmeline Pankhurst and Lily Parr in Manchester, Annie Kenny in Oldham, Emily Wilding Davison in Morpeth, Nancy Astor in Plymouth, Elizabeth Frink in Coventry, and Mary Seacole in London, and not forgetting the imminent unveiling of Mary Wollstonecraft. But we still have a long way to go to redress the balance with white male leaders, angels, and naked nymphs. 
The ultimate aim is to get a statue, but we're also investigating other forms of art, such as murals, mosaics, and street namings. Another aspiration our charity has is to recognize each of the strike and union committee members by arranging commemorative plaques for each of them, either near their birthplace or in the area that they grew up. We already have an active campaign for a plaque in Southampton, my hometown, where Kate Sclater was born. In March 2020, to mark the strike on International Women's Day, supported and funded by Unite the Union, we arranged to send awareness ribbons to every MP and hundreds of peers. Ribbons were worn during both the Commons and the Lords debates, and the Match Girls were mentioned in no less than eight speeches. Ultimately, we would love to have the names of the Match Girls Committee read out in Parliament on International Women's Day annually to recognise their contribution to Labour history. We have an ongoing petition to save Sarah Chapman's grave from being mounded over at Manor Park Cemetery in Forest Gate. In 2017, I found Sarah's grave, an unmarked pauper's plot. It is threatened with mounding, which is a brutal process that involves removing all headstones, levelling the ground with JCBs and adding new soil. Once the soil is settled and compacted, some three to five years later, new burials are made. This involves digging into the existing grave plots and risks disturbance of the remains. It also means the locations of the graves are lost forever. We're campaigning to ensure that private cemeteries have to operate under the same regulatory laws as municipal cemeteries. We've raised funds to get a proper headstone for Sarah, but it could be years before we can put it in its rightful place. Eventually, we hope to find all of the graves of the committee members so we can ensure they all have fitting tributes. Last but not least, we're keen to raise awareness of the Match Girls story via our website through collecting descendant stories and via education and the arts. We're keen to work with local schools and community groups to provide drama and art workshops. And we recently launched our first competition to encourage a new generation of poetry, flash fiction, and even film to share the story and inspire people from all walks of life. Here are the links to our current live campaigns but more than that, please do let us have your opinion about the statue and the memorials. You can give us your views by visiting our website and either directly submitting a feedback form. Or if you simply want to follow our progress, do subscribe to our mailing list to follow us on or follow us on social media. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of the evening. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sam, for coming and talking to us about that and spending some time on your birthday with us too. And it was an extremely informative presentation um, and really emotional. Really, I mean, with the Sarah's Grave campaign, that's, you know, extremely emotional. But also, I, you know, I'd love to read more of the letter that the Match Girl sent to Annie, Annie Besant because at the end, I just caught the last bit there that said, you know, that we're scared but don't tell anyone or it's something of, of that kind of ilk, which was, um, you know, really, really emotional. And I think even if you've heard that story before, it's really important to hear it again, because there's always bits that you miss and things like that. So that's, that was fascinating. Thank you so much. And I can share those links to everyone. I can send an email out to everyone after this with those links if you want to um, learn more about that. So thank you again. Um, great. So hopefully Emma will join us. But if not, um, we're on our last speaker now, which I'm going to hand over 
to um, Sunny. And uh, Sunny um, is the Head of Human Rights and Social Justice and Principal Lecturer in Criminology at Sheffield Hallam. Uh, so I'm going to hand over. Hello. Hi there. Um, thank you so much, Amy, for organising this and inviting me to come along. It's, it, it's, so, it's so lovely in this COVID sort of isolated times, the day before we go into another lockdown, mm, for yeah. you know, women to come together and, and not just women, just people to come together and have, um, you know, a great conversation about women and work. Um, I'm going to talk about some of my personal experience of working in combat and gender-based violence, which is um, something that I'm really passionate about. And I'm going to share my screen. And what I'd like to do is almost... Um, do it as, as a bit of a story, as a bit of a narrative, really. Um, because when I when I thought about this, I'm trying to share my screen and I don't seem ah, oh, well, I can do. Um, I wanted to do it as a bit of an as a if I can get this to bear with me. Right. Um, I wanted to do it as a bit of a narrative because um, the work that I do in my background um, is is really informed from being a, being a child that was that grew up in the UK, British Indian heritage. My parents came to England back in the 1960s, and so my brother and I were um, the first generation born here and that went to school here. And it really resonated with me. Uh, and it's it, when Emma was saying about you know this isn't what she was meant to be doing. Um, I became one of the first um, British Asian women criminologists. Uh, oh. When I went off to university, my parents weren't expecting me to be um, a criminologist. You know, I, I was the good Indian girl that was off to university um, and, you know, they were really pleased. And uh, I was meant to do law originally and um, rebelled against doing law and, and did so social studies um, social sciences and then in a roundabout way my PhD is in law so you know the the proud moment came for them later on but I grew up in a household in a in a in um, an Indian community where I saw a number of women around me from the Indian community that had multiple roles they worked um, in 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 whatever um, industry that they worked in but they also had a significant role at home as well and what I experienced growing up was um, my parents' home became this refuge for women that were in trouble. And my mum in particular would often say to my brother and I, um, we've got somebody staying over and you need to share your bedroom or you need to share your things. And it was never explained to me until a later point where um, I just knew these women needed help. And they, they, they were really struggling in terms of um, being victims of violence, particularly domestic violence. And it was a real taboo subject amongst Indian communities at that time. And fast forward, I got the opportunity to um, do a PhD, which I did, um, which focused on minority women and criminality. And within that, there was lots of stories about women's journeys, particularly girls' journeys, should I say, to becoming um involved in criminal activities and one key fact that was that was shared by all of them was their experience of personal violence that they had been victims along the way and it really was something that was so profound about you know this this these women needing to access support services but also to access some forms of justice 
And fast forward to um, 2012, um, and I was pregnant with um, my daughter and remember seeing the horrific, um, um, hearing about the horrific story of the, the incident, should I say, of um, a young woman that had been gang raped in Delhi. And it was, it was, it was a landmark um, case in a moment for India where there was huge protests by men and women in India. And there was this real significant call for justice and about the heinous crimes that were happening across India. Um, and it was, it was a really sort of profound moment for India, but for also people working in that area that we need to do something on the ground. And subsequently, um, I got funding um, to run a project called Justice for Her in India. And we started with the police. So we started um, with the police in particular, and it was very much in the, uh, in, in the format of really the principal thing about what UN women promote, which is, um, I say no to violence against women and girls. And what we saw across India, now India is huge, and it's, it's you know, a, a population of nearly 1.4 um, billion people. It, it's, this, it's the largest democracy in the world. And, you know, we knew that we could only cover certain bits of it. So I've circled the bits that you can see in red. Um, so we worked in Punjab, Haryana, Delhi and Madhya Pradesh, some of the states that have got the worst cases of um, violence against women. But the key thing for us was that there was this real momentum on the ground in India, which was saying, Globally, we're being represented as, as you know, sort of patriarchal, um, very violent, and you know, we want justice. We want this to stop. We need help in helping to stop some of these cases, and that was significant for 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 me because I'd grown up in this environment where I'd, um, as from a really early age, knew that women had nowhere to go, and as a student, became involved in activism in this area and worked in um, a number of um, civil society organizations as a volunteer and then later in terms of doing work for them as well in finding support and access for women. So it's been in my blood since, in, since an early age. And the opportunity to do work in India was, was really sort of at the heart because it, it's my cultural background and it was something that I was really passionate about doing. So we worked with the police in those four states and it was really working to sort of bridge the gap between um, civil society and communities and their access to justice um, through police mechanisms. But we also knew that the police needed a, a real sort of um, overhaul in how they trained officers about responding to gender-based violence and crimes of that nature on the ground. And when I started this work, a lot of... Um, people said why do you do it you know going to India as a, as an Indi as a, as a Indian and a British Indian at that why do you do it um I've put these two photos up because um a lot of the work that I did in preparation for doing the work with the police was to go and talk to civil society and to go to organizations that um supported um female victims and it was about seeing the realities of 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 women's experience on the ground and how that needs to inform anything that we do with police officers in particular. 
both of these babies here are, are um, have mothers that are um, girls. One of the mothers was 13, the other was 16. Both had been um, sexually abused by, fam by a family member. Both had been, both of the victims, the girls had been beaten up. Both of them felt like they had nowhere to go and ended up at a women's refuge. And um, their stories were tragic because there was, no, there was no way that they were gonna to go to the police and report the crimes against them. So for me, it was there's there's I, th I think um, something that came up. I can't remember which one of the speakers said it before. There's this real. Um, it may have been Helen about that sort of, you know. There, there's an emotional part of of the work that women do, and I think when we do work, certainly in combating gender-based violence, it is very emotional, and it you know there is an emotional labour attached to it, and and certainly you can use that in a way of fueling your passion to do that work. And I think everybody um, that works in this field has a really strong, passionate moral compass about wanting to change the realities on the ground for, um, for victims, particularly women victims, and understanding that justice may take certain forms for them. So it may not necessarily be about um, going to the police and getting a prosecution, but it may be just about safety and stopping the incident and seeing what happens next for their lives. So that was a real sort of um, moment for me to sort of reflect about why is it that I'm doing this? And throughout my career, I've really, um, that's been a really key theme. So from doing a PhD about um, the invisible girls, the minority girls that I focused on and becoming one of those first female Asian criminologists in, in, in the UK was a moment about why am I doing this? You know, and it is for me as, as the work that I do in human rights and criminology, it's about hopefully contributing to making the world a better place and, you know, making, you know, if we can get access to justice for one of these victims, then, you know, I feel that we've, we, the work was worth doing. So for me, the journey of work has really been about reflecting on that personal motivation of why we do what we do, why I do what I do in particular. So we've worked really well across India and I've worked with some amazing um, people on the ground in India, as well as um, taking international experts there. And one of the things that um, and, and, the, and I think it's really important sometimes to see sometimes the global media attention for things such as combating gender-based violence in India and some of the rea realities of working in that field. It is a tremendously difficult area to work in, but it's not impossible. And it is challenging, but again, it's not impossible and you can make headway. And across the journey for me from the officers, and you can see the, these are pictures of some of the officers that I've met, met and worked with. Um, there's been really strong motivation by those officers. They understand that they get bad attention. They, the police understand that rightly so, they get some really bad attention because of the way that they've dealt with the um, crimes um, against women and supported victims. And they want to change that. There was some real willingness that we saw that wanted to change that. And that really spurred on some of the work that we've done. And we've continued to work in India since 2016. Um, and, I, and again, I've worked with an amazing team. And they were very willing to share 
their, their stories and their narratives and experiences. And one of the things that I'm, I'm doing now um, in, in India is that I'm working specifically with female police officers. And we're doing like a women's police officers empowerment program because they really are the invisible um, officers on the front line try, trying to respond to female victims of crime, but they need a huge amount of support and recognition for the work that they do too. And it's something that we're really committed to doing now because we can see that um, there is a crisis of that that we, that we really need to sort of um, really focus on them and supporting them because in terms of the legislation in India, female victims can only report their crime to a female officer. If you have a female officer that isn't willing to take your um, report or doesn't have the skills to take your um, report and file it, then basically you're not going to get access to the formal process of justice. So we're doing a lot of work with that. Um, and this is just photos of some of the stuff that we've done in terms of capacity building between civil society and the police as well. And our programmes are really innovative. So it's not just about going in and doing the helicopter approach of the Brits know best and we're going to teach you to suck eggs. It's not that approach at all. It's very much about working in collaboration with organisations. And again, that is something that I've been really um, committed to doing in the work that I've done in particular. Um, one of the other things that I think is, um, for me, really um, important is about sort of transferring that knowledge to other areas. So we've created from the work that we've done a um, training manual, which is improving access to justice for women and girls that is available um, via the Helena Kennedy Centre website where all those resources are free because we think knowledge transfer through our work is really important and that that's the way that you can really sort of spread the word about good practice and really making um, a difference in this arena of, of policing gender-based violence. I just wanted to end on a plug really. Um, this is about, um, I'm really pleased to be part of this in, in November. Um, 16 days of activism against gender-based violence begins this month. So it, it's timely that I do this and sort of then nudge a reminder 21 days from now that this, this campaign starts. And what we have seen during COVID is um, the increase of um, crimes against women and, and their victimization has increased as a consequence. And from and that's globally that's in the uk we've seen um you know reports of of the danger that women particularly victims of domestic violence during lockdown faced by being in a lockdown situation with their abusers to um the um what i'm hearing from the ground in india is um girls being sold because families can't afford to keep them because of migrant workers losing their jobs and, and so on. So it is really important as a collective and I, and I really believe in, um, you know, sort of the, these campaigns that really illuminate and highlight the need for us to continue to do work. Um, th there's never enough good work that can be done in this, in this arena of combating gender-based violence. And the campaign this really is about fund, respond, prevent, collect. It's really about, you know, saying we need to still drive these agendas forward and, and, and do as much as we can. And for me, I think 
the campaign is is certainly gender led predominantly by women but one of the things I'd say is that you know it's really important to engage men in the debate as well because if we're ever going to combat gender-based violence we have to engage both men and women um, and I'll stop on that note and happy to take questions and um, continue having a conversation. Thank you so much Sunny for that it was so fascinating hearing about more of your work and the breadth of of your work as, as well um, and also just really interesting to hear um, about what's going on with women and work and how that affects women in a different culture as well. That's fascinating and something that I think we'd really like to do more of on this on this programme too. Um, we've got 15 minutes left. And so um, I was um, going to use this last 15 minutes to open it up if anyone has any questions. So um, there's not a huge amount of there's there's 23 of us. So I think we'd probably be able to manage it. If anyone wants to ask a question to any of the speakers, then just feel free to unmute yourself. And I'll ask you if you're going to unmute yourself to ask a question, if you can put your camera on. It's just an extra security measure that we have. Um, and I'll start to get things going, but it'd be really nice if people um, had some questions um, that they could have a think about um, while I ask my first one. Um, so my first question is um, for you, Sam, and about the Match Girls Memorial. And you spoke a bit about it at the end, um, which was about widening um, the idea of if you know, there's been so much debate when it comes to statues and things like that this year. Um, and so I'd just like to know a bit more about, you know, you said you you were kind of thinking that you'd have a statue, but you're not wedded to it because you also thought about different ways of memorialising. What's your kind of current thinking on that? And how's, how are you being informed by, by that to, to kind of make that decision? Um, yeah, thank you for the question, Amy. You can hear me, can't you? Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, yeah, of course, the, the debate kind of went up a notch um, last year. Well, no, it wasn't last year. It was earlier this year with the, with the Black Lives Matter movement and, and you know, everything that went around that. And yes, it did sort of bring into high relief the whole, the whole issue. Um, but um, while we're not wedded to the idea of, of a statue, because we're still, you know, we're, we're investigating ideas of, of murals and mosaics, etc. None of them are exclusive to each other. So it doesn't mean, you know, because I quite like the idea of a match girls trail in the East End where we would have, you know, several, several different things. Um, so um, we still very much have got our, you know, our firm site set on the idea of, of a statue of some form or a sculpture or something. Um, and I think the, the only thing that perhaps kind of slightly slowed us down was the fact that um, in reaction to the whole um, the statue debate, Tower Hamlets Council launched their own consultation. Oh, um, yes, yeah. Engaged kind of public feeling on what should actually be recognised in the borough, what, you know, who should we be celebrating, etc. But in a way, I mean, that's not, doesn't go against what we're trying to do. In a way, it works with us, but it's... Um, it's something that we have to take into account of what they're trying to do as well. So we don't want to kind of stampede all over what the council are trying to do in their own borough. We want to very much work with the community and we don't want to come barging in and giving them, give them a statue that they're all thinking, well, you know, who do they think they are? You know, we, we want to make sure that we're working with them and, and give them uh, memorials to, you know, to, to, that they are going to enjoy and benefit from as well. 
Um, so everything that we're trying to do is, is definitely engaging with the community, working with them, making sure that we feed, you know, education and awareness into the whole thing. So we, we all go on a journey together to, to reach the main aim. Um, so, you know, I mean, we, we, one of our trustees, Fiona, she's actually the great, great granddaughter of Annie Bazant. And she lives in Bristol and she was kind of right there when they pulled down Coulston's statue and, you know, was in the mix of all of that. And, and then, of course, in Bow, we have Gladstone and he comes with his own, own story about should he be there, should he not be there. Um, and one of our trustees, actually, one of our ambassadors, sorry, wrote a blog on our website about that very aspect wow. about Gladstone, should he or should he not be there. So... Um, we're very, very much aware of it, is all I can say, and it hasn't changed our course. We still definitely want to memorialise the Match Girls 100%, um, but we definitely want to make sure that we, we take everybody with us and they, you know, we, we travel on, on this journey together. I particularly liked as well that your um, idea on the plaques and that you could, you know, um, have a plaque to where they were born or perhaps where they spent a lot of their time, because then it's not such a like a London focused thing and it's a story that, that gets told throughout the country and I, I was thinking on that are these women like London natives do they mainly come from different areas in the UK or different countries you know um how far have you got with that so the the match girls um generally are known to have a large Irish contingent so we know lots and lots of people who lived in the East End in, in the 1880s, you know, we did have Irish descent. Um, but I mean, I've got no um, evidence that my Sarah, for instance, came from anywhere other than, than London. And her dad was born in Hornchurch in Essex and her mum was born in in um, in London. Um, but, but Kate is, you know, probably maybe Kate Sclater is one of the unusual ones because we were very surprised to find that she was born in Southampton. Um, in fact, just, you know, I mean, I'm in Southampton now and she's just like born three miles away from where I am. And in fact, a week tonight, I'm actually talking to a group in Southampton on Zoom to tell them all about great stories. So oh. it's great that we can tell stories out of London as well. Yeah. Um, and you know, we know some of them were born just outside London. It, it would be great to be able to, you know, to, to trace the back to Ireland and find that I'm having a Zoom call with somebody in Cork or something like that. That so, would be uh, wonderful. Yeah. So, so we're, you know, we're, we're just going to keep investigating, keep, keep researching and, and we'll spread, spread our wings as wide as we possibly can to get the story out there because it's such a great vehicle to get the, you know, to get the story far and wide if we find there are connections in the wider yeah. kind of part of the UK and Ireland. Definitely. Thanks, Sam. That's great. Um, does anyone have any questions? If you if you have any questions, Claire, I think you had some questions for Annie, but feel free to unmute yourself. Could I ask Annie a question? Please. Um, it was really good to hear about your work, Annie, and I kind of just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about maybe some of the things that have surprised you since you've kind of un undertaken this work, but also perhaps some of the challenges. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about particularly that you do do the work in public space. Has there been resistance to you sort of doing that work in public space? So yeah, I'd just be interested to hear more both about the kind of things that have gone well that have surprised you and also the more challenging aspects. 
Um, sure. First of all, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone. It's been really, really great to hear you talk. And I'm sorry, I'm not the most prepared today. I'm normally I'm much more prepared, but I've had a frantic kind of getting everything ready before lockdown. So thank you for bearing with me and my very short talk. Um, yeah, it, it has been uh, it has been a bit tricky at times, um, particularly sometimes I'm sometimes um, there are more complex politics in place when you install work in an area and that comes to light afterwards and you know it's yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of things to consider in terms of you know where you're in where you're installing work you know the, I always work with communities that will directly engage with the work and experience it on a daily basis I always do that without fail and never install anything without that process happening um but it is um yeah it, it, it's it's there are often some dynamics that i'm not aware of um which i've really tried to become like fully abreast of before i do anything so the process is usually a good six months of engagement work before we before we install anything um but yeah it it, it is a little bit tricky and i think in you know i've i guess I know my own moral compass and I know my own feelings on integrity and that, you know, I, that I have that in abundance. So, you know, when there have been times in retrospect where, you know, I've kind of, I have discovered things, um, I've, yeah, I've kind of picked that up as best as I can. It's, but, I mean, I can think of only one or two occasions where that's happened. Um, I try to, you know, engage as broadly as possible beforehand it's a it's so essential to my practice because you know the last thing that I want to do is to go into a space and you know just put something I mean you know I think you may as well just sit in your house with your own artwork if that's what you want to do you know so I think it's really important to try and engage as many voices as possible to kind of yeah gather a collective feeling before you do anything thanks thanks Annie, that's really interesting to, to hear that kind of approach. And I think, again, it is essential. And especially when, you know, and similarly at the meeting house and working in engagement, you know, a lot of the time, you know, to engage people with these stories and histories and, uh, you know, feminist stories and things like that, you, you have to work with communities and see what the need is locally and things like that, rather than, or create an event and then try and get those kind of audiences in, you know, that's never going to work. You have to, the, the event or the engagement work or that kind of thing has to has to be based around that community group rather than putting on an event and then hoping that they'll turn up um so that's it and I think there's a real difference between you know the work that I would make around my processing my own trauma and you know very kind of private work that I that I put onto certain platforms and the work that you make when you go into a space and you are there to you know facilitate something and create some degree of safety for other people's voices to come forth it's really different obviously a really different approach so you know the the, the tone and the, the the mode of operating changes entirely and and I really you know that they're two very separate things um does anyone have any questions for any of the speakers I have I actually uh, Helen was going to ask you about um, about your research, um, but if anyone else, just feel free to unmute and chip in. But um, yeah, Helen, I was going to say about the about the marriage bar kind of generally, and, and 
I feel like it's probably something that not a lot I mean I didn't know much about it until recently until I started reading a bit more about kind of like working motherhood and that kind of subject and I wonder if more people knew about this you know and I'm pretty sure it's like intentional that we don't know about this to the general public you know as much how do you think that would change people's perceptions of um how they think about like women and work generally but I mean I'm, sh I'm sure that's it's very much your work you know you you write whole books on this subject and so why do you you know what kind of impact do you think it would have if more people knew about the marriage bar uh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, I mean, it's interesting doing this work because I, I sort of find there's often sort of kind of two broad reactions when I talk to people who perhaps haven't come across it before. Mm. One is that they say, oh, my great aunt, you know, was a brilliant scientist or whatever and was made to give up when she married. And although she enjoyed her married life and had children, etc., she always sort of regretted it and missed it. Um, and then there's a sort of the other one, the other reaction where people say, well, I thought that was just custom and it was accepted. And that was what, you know, that was what everybody did. And I suppose it was what a lot of people were for to do because of the legislation. I mean, one of the things I find really interesting about the marriage bar is um, the fact that it has to exist at all. Because if women were actually just leaving the workplace when they married and just happily going off, you wouldn't need to make a piece of legislation or a, a kind of a clause in an employment contract to make them do that. So there's something quite interesting in that dynamic. Um, I suppose what it kind of exposes more broadly is this sort of a number of things, but this sort of the kind of construction of gender roles and the way in which these kinds of things that seem so sort of natural and normal that, you know, um, women will be the homemakers, they will be the ones who do the domestic chores, um, the man will be the, the breadwinner, all of that is constructed and it continues to be constructed by things like the marriage bar. And um, kind of what I was talking about at the end, there's a kind of a big hangover of the marriage bar in terms of the kind of longer term expectations that that sets and the kind of way that the assumption that middle class uh, married women in particular aren't going to work after marriage, that all kind of gets ingrained in society. I'm not sure I've entirely answered your question about what I think it would change, but I think it, I think it would just expose the constructedness of this, so much, of gender roles so much. Thank you, Helen. And yeah, I think I I don't know that much about it, but um, le learning a bit, you know, when you were talking about that kind of 1930s period where lots of men are losing work and then there's lots of women, especially like working class women that have work. And then suddenly that whole dynamic changes where the man isn't the breadwinner anymore. And I just... I, you know, read a little bit about that before and can't imagine how difficult that would have been, like as a woman earning that money, but then not wanting to kind of like emasculate your your husband and how, and, you know, I read accounts a bit of like the men and how they felt about that kind of period and too. And, and it was fascinating, but made you think how much we are ingrained into thinking that men are the, the breadwinners in family and the the kind of pride and, and that comes with that. Um, yeah, that was um, fascinating. Um, right, we have like two minutes left. If anyone has any questions, I think there's... Oh, lovely, just lots of nice feedback in the, um, in the chat, which is great. And I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who spoke and asked questions today. It was a wonderful, really diverse range of topics and things. And um, Caroline has said, 
that you know we mentioned earlier it'd be really nice to hear from women from a broad range of cultures or just have experiences with those different cultures work in different fields and things like that so I think that's what we're going to strive to do in the next one I really feel like this is a program of events that we can have every couple of months um, and if you do have any more feedback please do let me know um, I'm going to be sending out an email. We have a feedback form because all of this is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Project. So we collect all information on on all our events and things like that to make sure that we we uh, have interesting, engaging events in the future. Um, so I will send that and I will also send the links from that Sam had in her presentation. And if you have any feedback, um, please do let me know. Thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll see you at the next one. Thanks, everyone.